Hey there, and welcome to the Present Fathers Podcast. My name is George. This is a bonus episode that was originally recorded on Twitter Spaces with our guest Callie Means discussing food and the corruption that exists within the industry. We hope you really enjoy this episode, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the Present Fathers Podcast. This is the show that focuses on climbing the mountain of fatherhood together. We believe that dads matter. That's why this show is for you. So gear up, dads. Get ready. It's time to start climbing. Welcome to the first ever Twitter Spaces hosted by the Present Fathers Podcast. My name is George. I'm joined by my co-host, Dustin, and the rest of our podcast team, Justin and Brandon. For those of you who may not know, uh, our guest is Callie Means. He's recently been on major podcasts like Barry Weiss, Russell Brand, and the Pomp Podcast. Uh, Our topic tonight is the unholy alliance between major food companies and pharmaceutical companies. Uh, Callie earned his bachelor's degree from Stanford and his master's from the Harvard Business School, you know, so kind of a decent academic background, and has recently reported on the Machiavellian tactics used by these companies like Coca-Cola against the American people. Like I said, Callie, I'm really pumped for this, really excited, and I'm really excited to view this through the lens of fatherhood. I think maybe that's an angle you haven't had a lot of chance to talk about yet, Uh, so hopefully we can do that here tonight. But my first question is, have you ever done a Twitter space yet? <laughs> uh, back, back during COVID, I did a couple of clubhouses, but I, I, and I've listened to a number of spaces. No, but this is, uh, this is my first one uh, engaging, so I'm pumped to do it. And, and what a great topic. Awesome. You might hear my, son in, uh, my young son in the background here, too, uh, but I guess that's within Perfect. the theme. <laughs> yeah, that'll only add to the, uh, to the flavor of our podcast, right? So um, we are very appreciative of your time. We'll be sensitive to that. Uh, you know, we're, we're family people, too, so... Um, really, if you could just take us through kind of the high notes of how you have this background, how you have the inside look um, of these companies and, and kind of just some of the high level stats on why um, this is such a big problem. And I, I know you've really talked at this sure. heavily on, on numerous podcasts. So, you know, just the quick and dirty. So everyone has kind of a, some of the context if they're not aware. Um, and then from there, we can kind of just open up. I think Dustin had a bunch of really great questions teed up for you and we can have a great conversation. No, I mean, I think you teed it up well. I mean, I think, you know, growing up in D.C. and seeing inside some of these institutions, you know, D.C., working in politics, um, you know, kind of having idealistic aspirations, but really just being disabused of those. And that's not a new story, but definitely it was the case for me working, you know, working for John McCain and some other politicians I admired. But then inevitably after the campaign, everyone gets into consulting on both sides of the aisle. And, you know, people on the left and people on the right, people that we were on campaigns against are sitting and helping pharma and helping food. And, you know, pharma spends uh, five times more money in D.C. than the oil uh, industry. Um, They're the largest funder, obviously, of, you know, foundational uh, research at universities. And then not not too far behind them is food. And those are the two biggest, I I would say, spenders, you know, on lobbying and just general consulting and on research. And, uh, you know, it's all so normalized. So... I just knew I didn't like it, so got more and more into entrepreneurship. Uh, as you said, went to HBS where, again, I, I do think it's a similar type of thing where, you know, a lot of people come in idealistic to these elite institutions, but then inevitably, you know, just this centrifugal force just sucks, you know, 90% of that class into traditional industries, into pharma, into food companies, a lot of friends working in pharma and, and food companies, great people. But, you know, I think, uh, honestly, uh, being a dad is a huge, it was a huge emphasis uh, for me on thinking about this. Uh, my sister, um, 
Dr. Casey Means, who was uh, the pride of the family, Stanford Med School surgeon, but um, quit with this insight that she had no idea why people were sick and, and didn't take one nutrition class at Stanford Med School because of um, basically corporate interests. That's all pharmacology, the entire you know, basic, basic uh, curriculum of American medical education. So she started a company called Levels Health, and, and that story had a big impact on me. You know, also my mom dying in 2021, very abruptly uh, from the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer 12 days later, uh, dead, and, and then realizing with Casey and untying that, that pancreatic cancer, many forms of cancer are actually highly tied to, to food, to prediabetes. Um, you know, if you don't have prediabetes or diabetes, like 50% of the country, you have a very low chance of getting most chronic diseases, including cancer, including Alzheimer's, which which is now called type 3 diabetes. So, um yeah, just just kind of putting the pieces together. And I've never been a big nutrition guy. You know, back in the day, I used to loud the, you know, praise the innovations from American agriculture and pharma. But you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, it's it's kind of clear. You know, we are systematically uh, getting decimated uh, as as a country, our human capital, our cells, uh, by food. I mean, when twenty five percent of kids right now have prediabetes, which really wasn't a thing ever for children just probably 20, 30 years ago when, you know, 93% of the country's metabolic dysfunctional, functional, uh, 15% of kids now have fatty liver disease. So you could go down the statistics, but these are obviously just unprecedented things. And, uh, and, and, and for me, it's just, it, it impacts their brain. I mean, it just, it's just like, we are just decimating these kids' bodies and brains. I mean, if, if 45% of kids right now are obese or overweight, you know, there's really something fundamental happening that's going to probably hamper them. And uh, and to me, just going back to my, you know, passion early on for public policy, it's just this is the first order issue that we're being distracted by. And I'm just trying to call out as much as I can um, some of these institutions I saw. And, uh, and I'm really glad for this conversation because it really does for me. And what I'm seeing resonating, honestly, about this is with parents. I, I just I just think it's so obvious you know, that what's, hap- what's happening to kids right now is just completely unacceptable. It's uh, cross-partisan. And, and I, I really do think there's a moment right now where people are getting so pissed off that we actually might be able to drive some uh, some change. So, yeah, just just grateful to be able to speak out on this. And, and thanks, thanks, guys, for organizing this. Yeah, absolutely. So, Kelly, having a young child, did that make it harder or easier to speak out on Coca-Cola? What was your um, your kind of feelings around that? Yeah. For, so, yeah, just and you guys gave some context, but, you know, working for Coke early on, to, you know, one of the things that really resonated was, you know, in 20, 2011, 2012, when I was working for them, uh, consulting for them, the American Beverage Association, the front group, um, we systematically paid off institutions of trust for the express purpose of keeping soda on food stamps. It's the number one item, um, really, I think, just decimating lower income kids who depend on this this uh, program, but, you know, the number one item purchased is soda, which is understandable because it's highly addictive. Yeah. And some people have been asking that. It's like, you know, am I worried? I'm worried about a lawsuit or, you know, whatever. Um, Being a dad and looking at my son, it's like, it's like, I just don't give a shit about any of those consequences. I just like, you know, it sounds corny and, you know, I, I really do feel this way. It's just like, this is just selfish in a way for me. Like I feel a great purpose in this and, you know, I've been super inspired by a lot of like other folks, um, you know, who've been blazing the trail on this and I'm just a foot soldier here. But like, I think a lot of people just need to be speaking out and chipping away at this, these incentives in different ways. So 
I've actually been super calm um, throughout this whole process and just really feel like it's what I'm supposed to be doing. So uh, and I think a lot of that actually does come from, from uh, my kid. I, I just, I just think, uh, I don't know. I, I mean, honestly, just hundreds of messages from parents in the past month and DMs and, and emails are just like, I think it is resonating. Like and a lot of parents are just like, what the hell is going on? So, so no, it's actually been very, very positive for me. And, uh, you know, it just feels like a, like I have a lot of purpose here um, as a dad. Yeah, that's awesome. And it took a lot of bravery. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. If I knew that it would make things a little harder for me and my son, if I took a, a brave stance like you are, I don't know if I would do it. And so I'm so glad that you did because the easy route, of course, was to stay silent and just not say anything and just keep doing what you're doing. So, uh, but then, yeah, you do, you look into your young son's eyes and you think mm -hmm. in 20 years, am I going to be able to, with a straight face, tell him that I did everything to make the world a better place. And if I couldn't, I don't know. I, I, I get where you're coming from. It's, um, it's awesome. Definitely. Um, thank you, man. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really appreciate it. I mean, I'm one of those parents that you really resonated with, you know, when I started, um, I listened to you on the pomp podcast first and mm. I said, Oh my gosh, I have to talk to Callie. And this is incredible. What you're doing. So, um, yeah, thank that's you. awesome. Yeah, absolutely. It's, how's that your son? <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah. We're not on video, but he's looking, he's looking very cute. <laughs> that's awesome. Okay. Very uh, nice. Yep. <laughs> I just put him um, to bed. Yeah. Well, th thank you, man. And, no, I appreciate that. And I don't know, just my, you know, just from my vantage point of this in the last month, I just. I do think there's kind of like, I think under speaking just the truth is risky. I, I don't know see what happens. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe there's some farmer crew outside. Hey, Callie, can you hear us? Might be having some connectivity issues. Hey, did, did I lose you guys? Yeah, I think Big Pharma tried to cut you off. <laughs> How about now, guys? Oh, there you go. Perfect. Oh, Big Pharma, Big Food is, uh, is probably, as I'm talking. You guys got me now? They're, yeah, so they're hacking your Wi-Fi. <laughs> I was just going to say... Um, yeah, that, that's just my little takeaway. I, I was a little bit scared at, at first, um, but I just think institutions are so obviously letting us down that there is maybe a lot of opportunity to just speak the truth, which there is still this uh, assumption that it, it's kind of scary to do that or risky. Um, again, I kind of, not to beat up on these folks, but just you know, thinking about business school friends, I mean, there's just, I just think everyone has this, like, like there's so much force to just conform that I've seen in institutions throughout my life and like, I do feel like grateful, like that I'm a on a little bit of a different path. And I just don't think it's as risky necessarily as, you know, I don't know, just, just kind of speaking, speaking your mind. I think there's so many institutions to call out and, and it's funny, even it's funny how people have reacted. I, I mean, you know, the friends and leadership at some of the firms I used to work for, you know, I'm talking to off the record and they're like, yeah, you know, it's a fair call out. They're, they're still making their paycheck from the places, but they're like, they're like not even mad. And, um, you know, a couple of people actually have been kind of lashed out. Like we've been calling out this uh, food study, this Tufts uh, NIH uh, sham study that's that says Lucky Charms are healthier than beef. And um, and Joe Rogan picked that up and some other folks. And, you know, the, 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 the guy that uh, the, the guy that's the head of that study, 
you know, has lashed out at us. Uh, my, my co-founder and I called us from Davos, literally like screaming. Um, so <laughs> like people have handled it in different ways, but you know, other institutions I've called out, you know, like the Heritage Foundation, for instance, um, the leadership, you know, reached out, you know, we, we had a very simple conversation. They talked about some of the changes they made. So it's, it's, it's just interesting. I, I, uh, it's been interesting engaging with these folks and I'm not trying to like put anyone, you know, personally on blast, but like, you know, these institutions that impact our lives are like really letting us down. So, um, I don't know. It's been, it's been gratifying and no, no, no death threats yet, but, uh, but we'll see. <laughs> well, we're, we're glad it hasn't come to that yet and hopefully it doesn't. Um, I wanted to just touch on one thing because you kind of got there, right? Talking about this guy from Davos. And another one was the, the doctor, you know, who's a Harvard graduate herself yeah, right. saying that, you know, obesity is genetic. Right. It has nothing to do with the food you're eating and, you know, some of those things. And, you know, you said, I forget which one it was, but you said it's evil, right? And I agree, man. I, so I look at this stuff and I look yeah. at the misinformation that's put out there, especially when it comes to food and diets and things like that. And to me, I just see this. Yeah, I agree with your assessment that it's a rigged system, right? And especially when it comes mm-hmm. to kids, man, you know, I, you, you pick your kid up from school and you see some of the other ones that are just way overweight, you know, as early as like right. first and second grade. And my heart just breaks for them because, you know, they're, they're basically being doomed to a lifetime of trouble. Um, right. And they don't have a choice, right? It's whatever their parents buy them. And maybe the parents don't even know any better, right? But it, it's just such a painful thing to see. So, you know, kind of bringing that back to how do we cut through all of this nonsense, right? Where do we go for legitimate information? And this comes from my co-host, Brandon, shared this question uh, for the group here is, you know, where do we make good decisions about nutrition for our kids? You know, how, how do we cut through all these false, you know, rigged systems, so to speak? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this question over the past month. Um, just one aside on that, on the Harvard doctor. I mean, this is what makes it so complicated because on the Barry Weiss podcast, I debated one of the leading doctors from Harvard on, you know, saying obesity, which is only an issue in the past 50 years is genetic, um, which is just manifestly obviously absurd. Um, um, I actually talked to a couple of friends from Harvard, um, you know, some, some doctors who, who, who worked with her, studied with her, know her well. Um, and what makes it so complicated is like, they told me like, she, she's a good person, you know, like, like she's, she, she, if she could snap her fingers and cure childhood obesity, she would, she, she was driven into this for the right reasons, but it's just a demonstrable fact that if children are, are not obese and get healthier, that, 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 that her job's at risk. Um, you know, it's, it's just a fact that these glimmering new hospitals, right. That take loans out. You know, those loans are under, underwritten by growth and obesity and they go, you know, those loans would go bankrupt if, if obesity stops. It, you know, it's it just a fact that, um, you know, that, that, that these obesity clinics and, and every lever of medicine, you know, makes money on performing interventions. That, that is how 95% of healthcare dollars are generated. Um, and those economic incentives, you know, in such a large system just make people, I, I think, actually do, you know, participate in, in, a, in something that in the grand result of it is, is somewhat evil. I mean, it's, it's truly a system that depends on more and more obese kids. And as she said on the podcast, they, they're making these kids lifetime patients. So, so what do you do? So this is my message. The Amer- uh, humans, right, humans and animals that we've domesticated are the only animals in the world that are systematically obese and systematically have metabolic dysfunction issues like diabetes and heart disease, right? 
you don't have systematic obesity with giraffes and lions you know, and tigers out in the wild or yeah. really, really any animal. We are exactly. born with innate ability to understand, you know, what we, what we should be doing. Um, a child right born has a predisposition to natural food. You know, they want to be moving. They want to be out in the sunlight, right? We systematically fuck everything up with the experts. Um, and, and that's just demonstrably happening. And, and you just, you just can't tell us that these issues are genetic or not part of choice or not, you know, the, the system, the healthcare system, which is the largest and fastest growing industry in the country, right? Where every other industry, right? Innovation means lower cost and, and better outcomes. Healthcare is doubling the rate of GDP and growth, fastest growing industry in the country, largest and producing worse outcomes as it grows. It's just like, that's because it needs sick patients for growth. That's just the raw economic mm -hmm. aspect. So the first thing we have to do, I think, as parents, and I, I think there's an awakening happening here, and this is, you know, definitely a journey that I'm on, is really having the courage to question the system when it comes to chronic conditions. So when it comes to chronic conditions, if you have an appendicitis, if you have a complicated childbirth, if you have like a gunshot wound, if you have something that's going to kill you, an infection, you should absolutely go to the doctor. The medical system is amazing at acute cures, but it's completely lost its way on chronic issues, on managing diabetes, heart disease, obesity, every single chronic condition that is now 90% of medical costs that we're trying to treat is skyrocketing in the rates of that disease that we're trying to treat. We spend a trillion dollars on diabetes management, and diabetes is going up. We spend $300 billion on cancer management, cancer is going up. We've spent a trillion dollars worldwide on statins and heart disease is going up. SSRI is the most prescribed drug in the country, depression, suicides off the charts. Literally everything we try to medicalize when it comes to chronic diseases is, is, is getting worse. So we just need to acknowledge that the medical system does not deserve benefit of the doubt when they give your child or give you advice on managing a chronic condition like obesity, like heart disease, like asthma, like things like that. And I, I really do think you're better off uh, not necessarily just completely ignoring your doctor, but really like like taking that as one data point and making up your own mind. I mean, the American Academy of Pediatrics, you parents have probably seen, give every parent, right, this pamphlet. You know, the doctor has to give it to you. It's saying like processed grains are the first food your child should be eating. Like they're not evolutionarily made to eat that. That's not what they're supposed to be eating. The, 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 you know, but, the, but food companies donate to the American Academy of Pediatrics and they're completely asleep at the wheel. So it's just like, that's step number one, I think, is just like really questioning that you know obviously there's a ton of content ton of podcasts ton of books um you know mark hyman has had a huge impact on me a lot of his books but you can get, kind of go down the list um but um but but that that's number one and then and then what i think public policy eventually i think this is a bottoms up revolution but you know i i think it's questioning i think the biowearable you know just having more curiosity and awe about what's going on in our body we're early in the biowearable revolution but you know, in, in many states in the United States right now, patients aren't even legally allowed to see their medical records. That's owned by the hospital. It's like, there's just, yeah, that blows my mind. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, that's another thing, just being more curious and understanding our body, which I do think is a big trend in the next 10 years and is going to disrupt a lot of this as we just understand what's going where, where, where we can't just be told the Fruit Loops are healthy or whatever. We, you know, right. we'll be able to see. Yeah. 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 Dustin, I, I think you had a question, but Callie, thank you. I mean, that's that's a really good kind of place to start thinking about. And and I do love how you 
consistently say it's about curiosity, right? There's no one right answer. It's just start asking questions, start seeking for yourself and make, make some of your own decisions. Go ahead, Dustin. Have the, have the courage to question your pediatrician or your doctor on a chronic condition. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. Um, so I uh, used one of your competitors last year to levels, um, something called January AI. Um, I did my blood glucose testing mm -hmm. and all that, and I loved it. It was a source of curiosity and inspiration. It was really kind of fun. And people looked at me and said, you're not diabetic. Why are you doing this? And I said, well, we're all a little bit dysfunctional with our metabolism. I've got a few pounds I want to lose. You know, I'm definitely not perfect by any means. This has given me so much useful data. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, that revolution is just getting started. And I'm really excited just to started. see, you know, the kind of information that, um, that we can get. Um, so on a little bit of a tangent, what, what is your take on alcohol as opposed to sugar? Do you, do you think that it's as bad? Like, let's say if I could have um, a beer or a candy bar, what, what's my, my worst, you know, kind of thing? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, one quick thing. Levels is my sister's company, um, and I'm a huge, huge fan. My new company is called TrueMed, which is on the similar mission, but we're writing food prescriptions to enable tax-free um, medical spending on food and exercise. Uh, but yeah, huge fan of levels, but January is great. And, and, and yeah, I, I encourage everyone if, to use one of these companies to, if they haven't to see inside, uh, their glucose levels, which actually gives some, some intuitive takes, but also a lot of food I thought was healthy was, uh, was not. And, and it was very interesting. Uh, here's my take on that is that I am not like against fun or against drugs. You know, I enjoy, uh, a beer, you know, now and then, and I, I don't think we want a world that's just puritanical and just like boring, right? Um, you know, I, I, I've met my wife when I was drinking alcohol. I've had great bonding with friends on alcohol. I, I, I'm not like, what I think we need to do is realize and not take the government or society or the elites lead on what is a good drug and what is a bad drug. Um, I think when you actually compare, you know, drugs by number of deaths that they've caused, sugar it dwarfs any other drug in the country. Uh, sugar it, it, it meets all qualifications for a drug. Uh, it's highly addictive. Uh, it's highly dangerous. Um, it has no nutritional value. Um, and but 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 the, the uh, CDC and FDA. So I think it's the USDA that sets the guidelines. Says that it's okay for ten percent of a two-year-old's diet to be this highly addictive drug, which is a complete fallacy because it's it's addictive. Yeah. Like so 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 what I would say is we just need to be very clear-headed about drugs and dopamine. I, I, you know, I, as a dad, you know, going down this road, right, I'm reading a lot of books on dopamine. I'm educating myself, right? You know, there's, there's not a big difference in my head between sugar, alcohol, and, your, and checking Twitter all the time and being addicted to that dopamine. Right? Yeah. I, I, so I just think we are literally like rats in a cage going from one dopamine rush to the other. I, right? I get up, I drink coffee, I check my phone, I... Have a, it's like we all are. That's just who what humans are. And I just think like we need to be aware of that. And when it comes to food, uh, you know, we really need to think about sugar as a drug that's been totally normalized. I mean, you know, smoking was completely normalized in the 60s. Right. And doctors are smoking all, in every office. It's like it's, I think it's the same thing right now with sugar. So uh, th that's kind of my thing on alcohol. I mean, you could, you know, alcohol. <laughs> is a very dangerous substance in large quantities. Um, but, you know, I, I wish we just kind of saw most drugs like alcohol. There's not a government recommendation for it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, think right. pretty good, I think there's pretty good, I don't think we should ban it, but, but there's pretty, you know, it's pretty clear that the, there's risks and it's not necessarily a great thing, but 
I, I think that's where we should move sugar and kind of how we should think about all drugs. That's it. That's a good way to, to think of it. That's right. Yeah. Four yeah. out of five doctors recommend cool menthols, right? I remember those uh, commercials back in the day. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and- yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there's a lot of examples just because something societally accepted doesn't mean it's <laughs> there's work doesn't mean it's um, right at all. And it's just, it's actually, it's absolutely unfathomable, right? That we, I mean, to me, it's inconscionable in a way that we prescribe 20, 25% of the American people an SSRI, which, which had their place. I'm not anti-drugs, but just like that's a societal impact right now that 25% of the country is taking some kind of mental health medication. Yet we don't teach children meditation in school or have any emphasis on that whatsoever from a public policy. It's just like, I just think we've totally lost our way in a couple of things um, when it comes to just our core metabolic health. So. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I, I appreciate it. And just so you know, um, this space is sponsored by Ozempic and Novo Nordisk, so this is awkward. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, okay, so quick question about your uh, your book coming up. Um, it's called Good Energy, correct? Well, I don't know how that got out, but yeah, yes, but we haven't really. I don't think our publisher was supposed to announce that, but but yes, that, that's what's. I don't think anyone really cares, but that's what's called. We will delete that then. Never mind. Can can you uh, can you talk about it at all, or is this still kind of hush hush? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, so yeah, as I said, the formative moment for my sister and I was my mom kind of dying abruptly of a metabolic condition. Um, it was a crazy year for me. I mean, my my wife and I uh, started an e-commerce company that you know, raised a lot of VC money. It was cranking before COVID, but it actually made wedding dresses. We were a direct consumer wedding dress seller. So it totally like got blown up during COVID. And that was challenging with my mom, COVID, just, you know, about to have a baby. So just a lot. I think actually my wife just had a miscarriage right, right around that time. So, um, you know, it's just kind of a 2021 was a really formative year for me and, and um, really solidified this health thesis. And, Again, this health thesis, as I was kind of alluding to, is like, do we just totally lost our way on how we think about health policy? We do, we wait for people to get sick and then spend 95% of our money on interventions once they get sick that do not make people better. And um, Casey and I talked a lot about that over 2021. And, our, you know, it's not a radical framework, but our framework is, from a public policy perspective, you know, that we need to just be encouraging, as a society, the basics, food, sleep, um, sunlight, uh, and I just see, see Jessamay on here who's talked about this and has a great, uh, great reel on this, but, but the, they call it the five doctors, but sunlight, chronic stress management, you know, the basically the basics. And, um, and I think my sister and I have this thesis that it actually is, has to be where health goes right now. When you're a doctor, you choose between 42 specialties. So the medical system breaks the body into 42 different uh, pieces. Casey was a head and neck surgeon, and she was going to focus her entire career on two square millimeters of the head. Um, and the dean of Stanford Medical School actually had a fellowship and was focused on one square millimeter. You know, that's how you become a top doctor. So we've segregated the body into into just a million different pieces, but everything we're suffering from is related. And it's almost like systematically, we don't understand that and doctors don't understand that. So the thesis, what we're kind of arguing is like the next 10 years is going to be a, there's going to be a metabolic health revolution and to us. Metabolic health means that we really have a new paradigm for medicine, that everything is connected. Um, I think it's absolutely just ridiculous that we treat diabetes as if it's some standalone disease that you take a certain drug for, and it's separate from other diseases. That is how diabetes is talked about diabetes and which is blood sugar dysregulation is the root of most diseases, right? Um, you don't have Alzheimer's 
very rarely ever have Alzheimer's if you don't have some kind of blood sugar dysregulation, right? It's kind of the root of everything. So the fact that a patient who's dying or, you know, has Alzheimer's doesn't even understand that their diabetes is related to that, which is most patients today in the country is crazy. So we kind of make that thesis through Casey's experience. And, you know, we're going to call out real bad things that she saw. I mean, systematic pressure on surgeons to do that marginal surgery, even though they knew it wasn't um, necessary. I mean, that is endemic in the system. And we're going to go through specific stories about that. And then the second half of the book is going to be um, hopefully some intuitive, some counterintuitive tips on how to take empowerment over your health. So, uh, um, you know, again, I, I think it's a, it's a bottoms up revolution, but our theory is there's a lot of people listening to these podcasts, a lot of people listening to Joe Rogan, you know, on down and uh, trying to take more empowerment over their health. I do think that is a revolution happening. So we're going to try to solidify some of the best tips. And, um, and um, I think through that, and, and there's a lot of people waking up, inevitably policy has to change because we're literally just going to go bankrupt. I mean, you know, we gloss over when we hear about healthcare costs. It's, it's just so common to hear about this. We don't even realize it. But 20% of GDP growing at a double the rate of GDP, it's going to be 40% of GDP in 15 years. It, it literally is unsustainable. Like by definition, like it has to change or we're going to go bankrupt or just have just such a non-competitive, fat, infertile population, literally, that like we're going to like cease to exist. So um, I think we're going to have to move to a more like public policy framework that like actually stops trying to drug the problem away and ask how can we encourage people to like look at the sun, move, eat healthier food that's not poison. Like, um, so we're just kind of trying to lay that marker down and uh, that's probably a long-winded explanation of the book, but that, that's some of the things we're, we're thinking about. No, I love it. Thanks for giving us that sneak preview. Yeah. I, uh, I can't wait to order it. And yeah. That's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, man. So you talk a lot Thanks, about sir. bottom up. Um, if you were top down, if you were president in Congress for a day, what would you do to change the incentives? What do you think it's going to take for that to for those misaligned incentives to reverse to where we have properly aligned incentives yeah i i I think some of the things aren't that complicated i think they're you know again there's good people in the medical system but i think it's an absolute shameful moral blind spot um on on just basic policies um i think a core principle i have is that people actually do listen to medical leaders um you know in the 1960s, it was like 7% of U.S. revenue to the government was uh, tobacco taxes. It was a huge political, you know, issue, right? And we didn't, uh, as a government, you know, say smoking was bad until the late 1980s. It was very late, right? But once the Surgeon General put out that report, smoking plummeted. Um, so people do listen to medical authorities. You know, another example, which was disastrous, is in, we all remember the 1990s when, you know, funded by corrupt studies from Harvard from the Sugar Foundation saying, sugar didn't cause obesity, the food pyramid came out and 20% of the American diet shifted from healthy fats to carbs and sugar. We really, we dramatically changed our diet in the nineties leading to this metabolic health disaster we have right now. People listen to that, you know, even with vaccines during COVID, most people got that, got the vaccine for you know, better or worse. That's a whole nother debate, but, but, but we did it for the most part. Um, we, we listen to medical leaders and I think the most shameful thing in America right now is that we say it's fine for two-year-olds for the USDA guidelines to have 10% sugar. Um, if you just made that recommendation zero, and this isn't a nanny state thing, we should not be recommending highly addictive, dangerous drugs to two-year-olds or really anyone. It should be like alcohol. It should be something that's legal, something that's, you know, you're able to sell Coke, but it should not be encouraged by the government to be 10% of our diet. 
And once you change that to zero, right, that then flows into a bunch of other programs and school lunches and all that stuff. Um, you know, the government just shouldn't, parents, a working, you know, mom who's lower income needs to defer to these systems. These systems are actually screwing them. So, so I'd start with that. I would just change the guidelines. I would change any subsidy for processed food or sugar. Um, right now, between all the programs, we spend over $100 billion subsidizing basically sugar. Um, you know, the school lunch, federal funding for school lunch programs, which do not have a sugar limit, food stamps, 70% of food stamps go to processed food. I mean, in Norway, if you're a lower income person, you have a card and you can go to a farmer's market. Um, that's the most like probably financially good policy you could possibly have because what's happening with us subsidizing crappy food is it's costing trillions of dollars down the road. So I'd stop subsidizing crappy food and I would just change the guidelines um, are two areas where I'd start. Awesome. I love that. And what do you, what do you think that will take? Do you think this is a 10 to 20 year process? Do you think it can be done sooner? Um, do you think it takes a couple yeah. of brave legislators? Like, is it a, a great man thing or is it a, you know, we need a hundred people to all, I don't even understand the process of how this would think. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking a lot about this because, you know, just, just from the fortune of having one of these tweets go viral and, you know, being a small, having a small view into this stuff, I've been chatting with a number of interesting people, including members of Congress on both sides of the aisle uh, who are really amped up on this. You know, it's, it's generally nutrition has been a, a bit of an issue on the left, but this populist wave on the left and the right is really getting amped up on this. And, you know, I've been on Tucker Carlson a couple of times and, you know, some, some outlets you wouldn't expect to be really uh, passionate about nutrition. But I think the fact that the system is so rigged is really animating people, voters on both sides, because I think it's because they have kids and see like absolute devastation. I think both sides of the aisle are kind of mistrusting institutions and corporations right now. Uh, so I do think there's a moment right now, and this is the framework I'm using, which is um, there's huge money. The problem is money, right? The problem is, you know, the largest employer, and I think the majority of U.S. states is a hospital system, right? So, you know, the, 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 the power of food and, and, and pharma to kind of keep the status quo is very powerful. The only thing that can counteract money in politics is grassroots support. The, the thing that counts more than money is if thousands of voters are calling the member of Congress. And unfortunately, right, you only have that usually on very targeted issues that people really, really care about, like abortion or gun control. Like, you know, there's a couple million people that vote on that issue and are calling and harassing people on that issue. So what we would need to do is we would need to uh, choose our battles, get a coalition of parents who really, you know, and other just just everyone. I'm just using parents because that's the topic of this conversation. I do think people looking at what's happening to kids are really amped up, but it, it's everyone who cares about this issue, who sees it as an existential issue, and choose specific topics like, you know, the, the guidelines are coming up in 2025 on nutrition guidelines, making that zero. Um, you know, the SNAP funding, the food, food stamps, they, you know, it's called SNAP, having that not have soda. You've got to choose specific issues and then just, just, um, just uh, carpet bomb um, with emails and letters and calls and that can counteract money. So I'm actually, you know, chatting with a couple different organizations and groups, and we're going to try to catalyze a little bit of that where it's maybe just very simple. You can sign up and maybe make one call a month, but I do think people are ready to get engaged and make some calls. And I, I think that is a, a route. Um, I'm actually going to DC in two weeks. I think I mentioned meeting with some of these folks. So yeah, not, not to, not to plug my Twitter, but, um, you know, I'm starting this company, but the reason I'm starting this company is because my partner, Justin, and I, our, our life's work is 
pushing this and shifting medicine more towards food and metabolic habits. And a big part of our efforts are going to be trying to catalyze um, channeling this energy. Um, and I think, I think we're thinking about how we can do a grassroots effort. Um, so um, be sharing more on that. But, but I think that's one way we can spur change. And I think change does happen faster than we expect sometimes. I mean, there was just dizzying change during COVID. I actually think we're in a period right now where there's more change happening in society than in American history. I mean, there is massive social change happening, societal change. I, I think our heads are spinning. And I think there could be a big change and positive change here if we um, can kind of organize a little bit better. That's exciting to hear. I love it. Yeah. And I'm yeah. looking forward to following up, getting some links. Um, we'll talk on our podcast about how uh, people can support you and um, how we can be part of this grassroots efforts. It's, it's really exciting stuff. Definitely. Thanks, um, yeah, absolutely. So that's in two weeks. <laughs> that, that's crazy. Wow. So do you feel like you've become a better speaker over the past uh, <laughs> the past month or so? How, how, how have you handled the fame? Has it affected your family life, being a parent? Like it's, it's got to be crazy, right? To suddenly be catapulted into the limelight like this. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Oh man. Um, aside from being on uh, my phone too much, uh, my wife isn't too happy about that. And we had this long planned trip to Hawaii where I was supposed to be off the phone, but, uh, but, uh, I was on a little too much, but, um, I don't know. I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd call it fame. I mean, I really just do feel like, um, I've been lucky to tap into some frustration and be able to articulate that. Um, you know, I really do feel hopefully the vibes come through. I just really do feel societally just passionate about this issue. I mean, it might sound corny, but I just feel like, um, I don't know. I, I guess I'll say this. I, I, when I was going on Tucker, I, I was on vacation and, and tweeted something and the, they DM me and I was, I, I literally had a black car come and was on Tucker Carlson that night. It was so, kind of surreal. And I was pretty nervous. And I, and I, I did like kind of try to meditate a little bit and think about, um, I, I did think about my son and like, think about, um, think about, I don't know, 25% of kids have prediabetes. I mean, it is kind of a shit show right now. And I, and I'm like, you know, this is kind of all surreal and fun, but like, it's pretty cool. I'm on like the most watched cable show in the country and like able to give this a voice of, you know, an issue they generally haven't talked about. So I, I had his name written on the piece of paper in front of me when I was a little bit nervous. And, and I do try to channel that and just try to um, ground a little bit in that. I also, during the Barry Weiss podcast, uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of Barry Weiss and going up against the Harvard doctor. And, you know, people were saying I was a little bit aggressive. Some folks were saying I was aggressive, but I really wanted to be firm. I, I didn't want to get into this nuanced speak. I mean, I think, I really wanted to get those facts out. And I did feel like, you know, there's, there's huge lobbying groups for pharmaceutical companies, but there's not a lot of lobbying or advocacy groups for diabetic kids. Um, and my sister has been a warrior and, and uh, people on this call is just, just made is a warrior on this. A lot of people are, and just like, um, I don't know, being in that chorus, I feel is a privilege. So uh, I've been super calm. I mean, like, I, I just, I, I don't know my background in politics and I've been thinking about this issue for a long time. I've actually been like, it's been a chill, like I've actually sleep, sleeping fine and like feel, feel great about all this, um, at the moment. So that, that's kind of where my head's at. Awesome. I love it. Yeah. That's, that's exciting to hear. Definitely. Um, George, you had a couple more questions. Do you want to, do you want to hit Callie with it? Um, yeah, I, I actually disconnected earlier on, unfortunately. So I, I missed, uh, a good chunk there, but um, I, I guess let, let's if we can bring it back to the, the grassroots vibe here, you know, so obviously you got to start with yourself, right? Educate yourself, then apply that to your own family. Um, you know, what, what's the next step from there without, you know, we live in a world now where everyone's kind of like, oh, it's my way, you know, I don't, t don't tell me how to live my life type of thing, right? But, 
you know, what's your suggestion for, you know, do we go to the school board and say, hey, we want better lunches? And I mean, what what is it that, you know, parents and, and families can do outside of their just nuclear family kind of in their local, you know, community to try and improve the situation? I mean, going back to the beginning, I think one just insight I have personally is that saying the thing you don't think you think is risky to say maybe isn't as risky. I mean, I, I talk to folks who are trying to get involved in the school board, you know, friends in more kind of woke uh, areas. And they're like, oh, I don't want to I'll get canceled by the school board or I'll get this. And then I actually know a couple of people, you know, in New York and San Francisco who are kind of speaking out. And it's like everyone agrees with them. Um, so that's just one, two cents. I, I just think like these things that are happening are so like unimpeachably like wrong. Like, wrong. It's just like, yeah. it's just like, it, it, it's like, I don't know. There's like Orwell novels about this. It, it really is like, we're being like totally gaslighted here. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's just like, um, you know, and I just, I just, I just don't give a sh- I, I thought I would be like stressed that, you know, you know, a ton of trolls are calling me racist on Twitter. It's like, I don't give a shit. Like it's like over on this stuff. Like these tactics are bullshit. Like, 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 like these are failing tactics. Like if you're fighting yeah. for your kid, if you're fighting for your kid and like speaking the truth, it's like, I don't think there's as much damage generally that happens as, as one might expect. I just think a lot of people uh, are still paralyzed by, you know, not wanting to upset the apple cart. So yeah, I think that's one thing. Um, I mean, I think the two big institutions right now that impact a child's brains are education and healthcare. I think, the deck is really, really stacked against kids. I mean, I do think, you know, parents on this call, I mean, I, I, I'll DM me advice. I mean, but I just think, you know, I, I definitely am trying to prepare uh, my son to, you know, really think uh, critically about what society is, is telling them. Cause, cause I think, and I just feel, I mean, I, it, is, it is really discouraging for, you know, many folks who have to defer, you know, to the existing systems. It's like, it, it, it's not good, but um but yeah, I also think everyone, you know, and a lot of people are just reading books, listening to podcasts and and trying to impart the critical thinking on their kids. You know, my mom, you know, had a huge impact on me in her final years, you know, with pre-diabetes, reading dozens of books, right? And and all these books by Mark Hyman and on, on metabolic health. It was too late for her, but like that really added to her life and it added to our lives and like it passed off to us. It's like, it's like, you don't have to get this perfect, but I think, again, and this goes to a policy level, like like having people more curious about what's going on, you know, in their environment with environmental toxins, with what they're eating, with their movement, with sunlight. It's like, that should just be, we should be fostering that as a society and we don't. And I just think that journey of doing that is like, you know, very gratifying and, um, you know, uh, it's just fun. It's just good to be on that. So I don't know if that's an answer, but those are some, some thoughts. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, Maybe we can go super practical on this yeah, next sure. one, right? What What are some good foods that people probably should be incorporating into their diet based off of what you're, you're seeing, right? right? So we talk a lot about the bad stuff. What are some <laughs> common good things that people could start throwing in their diet a little bit more and having, you know, giving that to their kids, even if they don't like it so much? Well, I'm probably cheating here because I'm, but, but but this is my premise is, is that you just have to look at the label for three items and you get 80% there. If you do not feed your kid, uh, number one, any type of added sugar, um, which we all know, but there's 40 different kinds of names for sugar. So you can look those up, but any type of added sugar, which obviously seeks everywhere. Number two is seed oils, canola oil, sunflower oil. Any food you look at in your fridge that you don't think has some random oil in probably has that oil. If you cut that out, 
and then highly processed grains. I mean, if you look at a kid's food right now, it's probably some kind of process like wheat and processed grain. And then it's cornflour oil or soybean oil. And then it's some kind of added sugar. I mean, we, the American food system does magic with those three ingredients. And if you just don't feed your child those three ingredients for their first two years, I truly be- I, I believe that should be the basis of public policy, the most important public policy in this country, right? Inevitably, when your kid kind of gets on their own, you know, whatever, but you can, you can essentially control their first two years. And, and, and everyone says kids are picky eaters. And I, I do believe this. It's because they get addicted to not only the sugar, but also the highly processed grains. You know, they want the puffs and they want the pasta that turns into sugar in their, in their bloodstream. Um, so as much as you can avoid that, I think that's the key, you know, what I'm trying to do just for myself. And also, you know, my son is one, not, hopefully I don't think any of those ingredients have crossed his lips. Um, so that inevitably then gets you to a whole foods, uh, diet. And then I just think it's a hunt for micronutrients and reading this book, Pegan Diet by Mark Hyman, um, you know, blog posts from Levels Health, my sister's company. But it's just like not seeing food as like, is it carnivore? Is it vegan? Is it this or is that? It's like, it's like reading these books and blog posts about what our cells, the micronutrients we actually need, what fiber is, what omega-3 fats are. And it's just like, there's not an answer. It, the answer is just to be curious about what's in those foods. Like, I've been fascinated looking at the difference between what a grass-fed beef and what a traditionally fed beef is, right? A grass-fed um, beef has completely, utterly different properties, right, because of because of what they're eating. So it's just like it's much more omega-3 anti-inflammatory, whereas the traditionally fed beef is very inflammatory. It's just like you, you start going down these rabbit holes and being curious. Um, but, yeah, it, it gets it gets also just to quality of, of the food, like quality, like – like pasture raised eggs that aren't stuck in a, like a, a sunless room, like pasture raised meat that's outside eating grass. So um, then you just get down the rabbit hole. But if you cut those three ingredients, you are on 80% of the right path, I believe. Sorry, I was stuck on mute. Yeah, that's, thank you for that approach. That's, you know, and I've told people that a lot too, because I'm a pretty fit guy and know a decent amount about fitness. I've had people, you know, ask me for advice and tips and stuff. And I, I, I always tell them number one, <laughs> cut out sugar. That's, I'm like, yeah. the number one thing you can do is don't drink soda. Don't eat, you know, sugar and, and watch a lot of people, you lose, start losing a lot of pounds pretty quickly. Right, but right. Um, yeah, I mean, for me and like my household, a lot of times we just avoid it, right? We just never buy it at the store. And then you know, you're never tempted to eat it at the house either. You know, that's, that works for us. So um, just trying to give people some, some, you know, tactical, practical things they can take sugar home. Sugar seed and, oils. And yeah, sugar seed yeah. oils and processed grains. It's awesome. Thank you. Dustin, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I work in anesthesia and uh, we do a lot of gastric bypasses, a ton of surgeries where you basically remove uh, 90% of the stomach um, and leave just a little pouch. Um, and it's fascinating seeing um, just how, popular that is and how um, that's exploded because it does work, right? People do lose weight, but you talked a lot about how uh, obesity is not so much the disease itself, but it's more the side effects. So can you talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about um, Ozempic? You know, great example, helps you lose weight, but it doesn't necessarily improve your metabolic health. Um, Same thing, you know, you might lose weight if you have your stomach removed because you can only eat just a little bit, but then what does your metabolic health look like? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So obesity, as we talked about, obesity heart disease, Alzheimer's, diabetes, autoimmune conditions, allergies, everything is shockingly, and we don't know the reason they're all going up at the same time. That's what doctors say. We, we know the reason, right? 
they're all branches of the same tree. They're all branches of our cells being under attack. And, you know, one basic statistic, but it's really resonant to me, is we eat 100 times more sugar than we did 100 years ago. You know, and sugar fundamentally, you know, turns is, is glucose. It turns, it's the, it's the fuel for our cells, right? And, you know, obesity, right? When, when the mitochondria is overloaded with too much glucose, it's getting 100 times more sugar, right? We don't even need to eat sugar. Our body can produce the, the energy it needs right? It actually gets kicked out of the mitochondria and turns into fat, right? That's, that's the excess sugar actually turns into fat, but, but it can do a lot of other things. You know, some kids actually, their fat cells themselves are insulin resistant and they actually have a very hard time gaining fat, but 15% of kids have fatty liver disease. So, so this excess glucose, this, this dysfunction that's happening in our body, Obesity is just one area it can present itself. It's a visible area, but it's actually in a way a good one. It's like we can see it. The problem though isn't obesity in and of itself. Obesity literally is visual result of cellular dysfunction. Like obesity is literally our body. It's excess, right? Evolutionarily, we never had way too much food like we do now. You actually, when you saw a big patch of fruit, you actually should eat as much as you possibly could because the human body is actually made to go weeks without eating, right? The purpose of fat is literally to actually store energy for when we had, you know, feast and famine cycles. So you were well advised as a human to eat as much as you could when you had food. And then that's the purpose of fat. But now we're in a constant fed state. But again, obesity isn't the problem in and of itself. And it is absolutely criminal that we're being told and kids are being told, A, that obesity is the problem to solve in and of itself. It's not, Right. And then uh, B, that it's not really based on choice. It's based on rigged system and food that we're addicted to. And to but it's, but it's, it's definitely based on what we do. So if you can think about it, right? So we're eating all this crap. We're eating 80% processed food. A lower income kid um, is probably, you know, eating close to 100% processed, you know, not great food. So imagine that kid goes in, you know, to a clinic and they get Ozempic, which is a lifetime drug, Okay. And also, according to what the American Academy of Pediatrics in Harvard is saying, that kid is basically being told, this is your cure. It's a lifetime management. You know, it's not your fault. There's not a lot of guidance on food. So what does that kid do? Maybe they lose weight, but they're still eating processed stuff. So imagine just any machine which is being fed crap fuel, but then you get 25% less of crap fuel. That's like the foundational genetic information that fuels our bodies. That, that's, not, that's not good, right? It's still crap fueling our bodies. That's why there's all these comorbidities. That's why all of these chronic disease treatments I mentioned, you know, all these diseases are going up, right? All these comorbidities are going up. Even stat, you know, statins is, are correlated with more rates of heart disease. Metformin's correlated with more rates of diabetes. Why? Because it's not solving the problem. It's solving one biomarker. You know, fasting glucose is one biomarker that metformin lowers. Cholesterol is one that stands lower. Obesity is one basically visual biomarker. But th that's not the problem. The problem is we're eating crappy food. We're sitting, not looking at sunlight. We're, you know, not moving very well, right? We have chronic stress. That's the problem. So if unless you don't hear that, it's like this moral hazard. You're basically telling kids what they eat doesn't matter. And that's not going to lead to better lives or less disease long term. Um, and this is this has been shown time and time again with the chronic like like are, are we living in a bizarre world? Like 
has the medicalization of chronic diseases not just been a total failure? And now we're doing it where we're trying to give this drug to t- potentially 80% of adults who are overweight or obese. So to me, it's actually this Ozempic thing is a real moment right now. Uh, it's a real moment, particularly because this drug will cost over $10,000 per American. 80% of people are eligible. And let's not forget, drug prices don't go down when volume comes up because of, because of laws. So we're looking at potentially over a trillion dollars of taxpayer money used for this drug. And my point is simple. That money could go to food. <laughs> right. Money, yeah. yeah. That money could subsidize or buy that money. We could buy caviar for every obese child in this country. Right. And it would be cheaper. <laughs> Man, that's. It, when you really think about it like that, you know, and, and that, that's what I love about how, when you, especially these other podcasts you've been on, you're, you're so quick with just pointing out the, the volume of the money that's spent in the wrong places. And then it's just very quick. You can very quickly see how much easier we could <laughs> shift that for better, right? If you, if you could wave your magic wand and have all your decisions go through, you know, in a week, how much different would it be, right? But, um, well, it's not yeah, it's just hard either. Like, the, like, really, right. It, it, it's like, it's like we're all throwing up our hands. It's like, it's like don't have the government guidelines say two-year-olds should have highly addictive drugs that are crippling the budget and human capital of our country. Like, that's one start. Like, don't, don't encourage it. Don't subsidize it billions of dollars. Like, this could all, like, it's why I'm kind of optimistic. Like, it's actually not like a crazy solve. Like, other countries are actually doing it pretty well, like Japan. So, I don't know. These public policy remedies actually are not, the other thing is, I, I just don't, the medical system, even the doctor on the on the Barry Weiss podcast, basically, she, she literally said, well, these, these kids are going to do what they do, implying that they're lazy. No, they're being screwed by the system. People aren't systematically trying to kill themselves. Like, people aren't essentially, right. the food is a drug problem. What's happening with food is a, it, it's, a, it's a mass societal drug problem. It's not an eating problem. It's not a hunger problem. It's a drug problem. We have an addiction problem. Because we've subsidized addictive chemicals that are in our food. And that can be remedied. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my co-host Justin had a question or a comment. Yeah, just a comment, man. I, uh, I, without putting myself in hot water, I work for a very, very prominent medical supply company. And I actually work in their physician office division. And I have to say, man, it's, it's unreal the growth we are seeing year over year in just laboratories. So our laboratories division is so busy. I can't even tell you, especially with this season, you know, having strep and flu being so bad as well on top of these issues, uh, how busy we were and how many items have been on, you know, manufacturing back order. And it's not because of COVID, but they want to keep saying it's because of COVID. It's not. Uh, But man, it's, it's inspiring to hear somebody like you come out and talk about this because you, what you're speaking on is why I do what I do is to help people make their lives better. My wife is a physician, so I understand like she's in uh, pediatric dentistry, which is, you know, not exactly the same thing as, as like what your sister does. But, you know, r- long story short, I, we see and hear things and, you know, oral health is one of the things that a lot of people don't concentrate on as well. And, you know, I have to hear the horror stories that she talks about and, you know, without breaking HIPAA, there's there's some pretty bad stuff. Um but yeah, it all comes out from from what you put in your body and how it pro- how it's processed. And man, I, I can't begin to even tell tell anybody how much we do in business. Uh, I mean, we're a twenty two billion with a B uh, company uh, dollar company, and we are growing exponentially every single year. And it's and it's been that way 
for 15 years, we're seeing 100 to 200 percent growth in some areas. So it's 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 fascinating and scary to see, you know, especially with A1C and diabetic uh, testing supplies, things like that, that I can't even tell you how much I'm selling in that right now. And it, it, it almost feels dirty, so to speak. But then again, I know that I'm helping someone evaluate a, a child or somebody's needs and, and, and wants and helps. So it's, uh, man, I just got to say, like, I, I'm really a fan now. You've uh, you really Thanks, got me on, on the cycle, man. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> I just uh, really just feel like I'm preaching uh, what I've learned from others. And it's uh, I really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my son's three, a little bit older. Um, when the birthday parties start, good luck, my friend. It is tough. Every single kid has a juice box. Every kid has cookies, cakes, candy. And you get some judgy looks from parents. You know, why won't you let your kid have a juice box? It's a birthday party. Have some cake. Have some cookies. And it's every weekend. It is. Uh, it is it, it, I'm trying to understand the psychology of that because I haven't quite gotten that place. But is it like, is it, is it that sugar is such a like mollifier for like, kids like it's like it's like a tool and it's almost like this normalized tool because it's like that this is what's in my head like they're they're addicted so it's like it, it seems like it's just this tool you can use to kind of uh placate the, the kid and it's just kind of this bargaining going on i'm just trying to understand what this like because when you look at it from a high level it is crazy watching a kid's birthday party i don't want to be that parent who's just like but it's just like it is actually like fucking crazy when you think about about just them pummeling. I don't know. Uh, what, what's motivating that? Like, like, like that dynamic of parents. Um, yeah, that's a tough question. I, I don't think it's mollification because you give your child a, a cookie and 20 minutes later, he's a monster. I mean, mm. my son is a sweet, loving child. And when we give him too much sugar, he's mm. not a nice kid. His, his behavior changes. Um, he's cranky. It's not great. So it's definitely not for the behavior changes. Mm. Um, I think it, it's more, um, it seems like a nice thing to do, right? Like you're being sweet and mm -hmm. being kind and you're giving children something fun that they enjoy, right? Because they want it so badly. Just like when I do anesthesia and I give someone fentanyl, they feel better and I feel good about that, right? I took their pain away. That's great. I did that temporarily. There's a small chance that, you know, that amount of fentanyl I gave them potentially predisposes them to get addicted to opiates some point later in their life. Now you can't have someone screaming from pain and surgery. So you, you have to do something, but I think it's that same effect where it makes us feel good in the moment to do something nice for that child. Um, and if we all get to do it together, it's this fun activity, right? Yeah. We all get high together. It's the same concept, right? And so yeah, it's um, that's my personal take. Interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, uh, it's fascinating. I think it's just, it's a cultural thing, right? Like the norm is, I mean, like go back and think about what we ate in the nineties, like snacks for kids in the nineties. <laughs> Everything oh, yeah. was like Halloween candy, right? It's just like everything. I, you know, I go back and think about the things my parents gave me for lunch at school or whatever. It's just mind boggling. You know, I, I never let my kid have anything even remotely close to that today, but you know, parties are like this, this blind spot almost where I think it's like, uh, it's a cultural norm for the parents to have tons of cake and ice cream and everything. And, and if you don't do that, you're like, you're the weird family that doesn't let their kids have fun type of thing, right. you know? Yeah. It just kind of makes me think, right. It goes back to the, the leaders and, and uh, trust. It's like, wh what are we relying on medical leaders for? It's just, it's such a moral, like, like we are being brought to our knees by metabolic dysfunction, particularly among children. It's just like, like this is what medical institutions are for. It's to raise that alarm bell and, you know, not to be too pessimistic about human nature, but it does seem like people like kind of look 
maybe this is a good thing too. I mean, like we have institutions and people look to them for advice and, and it's like, it's, it's basically a green light, right? It's a green light to have that, that to feed your kids with sugar. And it's just like, it's just, to me, it's so important. I, I think if there's one kind of grassroots thing I, I would push for, and we're, again, we're working on this and um, if this is resonating, I, you know, we're, we're, we're going to try to do some very lightweight grassroots things where maybe everyone can call or we can coordinate action, uh, you know, maybe one call a month or whatever. Yeah, but to me, it just goes back to like the, the USDA should like say this is not good. Like, you know, I almost put the parents on. It's like, yeah, if you want it, it's a free country. You can give your kids things that are going to give them prediabetes. But like we recommend against this. Um, I think that would change a lot. Maybe that would change the dynamic of the party where the parents who does that is weird. I, I don't know. But there, there's got to be leadership for medical professionals. And there's a lot of good medical professionals. Everyone, I think, got in for the right reason. But this is this is moral. This is a moral failing right now. Yep, and, and I think one of the biggest hurdles too right now is that if a doctor speaks out, they can lose their license. Exactly, they can be stripped of it. Exactly, uh, exactly. I mean, that's what's so tragic about the American Academy of Pediatrics. You know, very light talk on nutrition, but saying that every you know obese and overweight teen, which is now forty five percent of teens. Um, you know, should be considered for Ozempic. You know, of course, 10 years ago when uh, Coke was pushing food stamps to, to pay for soda, the American Academy of Pediatrics was nowhere to be found. In fact, Coke was paying the American Academy of Pediatrics at the time. So, um, you know, and as you said, they, they set the guidelines that a doctor could lose their license if they go against. It's it's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, and, and the, to make a, a point on what you guys are speaking on, it, like the, the advice I would give is – make sure you're interviewing and like asking questions with your doctors, make sure you have the right doctor in your family's lives. Because for instance, my wife sees things as a pediatric dentist. And like you said, it's, it's all limbs to one tree and oral health is one of those things that is paramount in not only an adult's health, but primarily a child's health because it affects development. In so different, so many different ways. So it's it's fascinating to think that there's parents out there who just do not pay attention to who their their kids are uh, seeing and who they're getting guidance and, and advice from. I would say absolutely, uh, almost interview your doctors and make sure they're the right fit for you and your family, and that they have the morality and the things that you you know you want to follow and believe in, and and make sure that they're having the best advice in, uh, for your not only your children but your family, uh, because it's it's huge on on their growth. That's awesome, Justin. Yeah, agreed. So, Callie, we're at about an hour. Um, what's uh, your time constraint like? Can you take a couple questions from the audience, or do you need to jump off? Oh, Oops. yes, I can do questions. Sorry, I was on mute. Oh, perfect. Okay. okay. Um, so, yeah, John, if uh, you had a question um, for Callie, what do you got for us? Yeah, hey, so uh, I'm a doctor and a podcast listener here. And, uh, you know, just to set the record straight, I know that there have been a few doctors who have been sanctioned in various states, but so far nobody's going to lose their license. But I think – my question to you, Callie, would be to what extent do you think this fits into sort of a broader cultural narrative, which is we just don't call things what they are. We don't identify issues for what they are. And, you know, we don't have the capacity anymore to say this isn't the way you should live a life um, because that's, you know, racist or ageist or, you know, incomeist or whatever terms people want to make up. You know, this seems like an unsolvable problem for as long as people aren't willing to say, hey, this is bad parenting, this is bad decision making, this is, you know, a bad lifestyle. And and the doctor issue that you guys just raised sort of just indicates the extent to which uh, that's sort of become normalized in cancel culture. 
there's such a yes, such a complex question. My take on it, you know, I, I don't think there'll be a complete answer to that, but I think my take on it is that it's very basic. Actually, we're living in the not to sound too conspiratorial, but I, I think we really are the corporate corporate and money pull the strings. Um, and, you know, I don't think the average person is caught up in these kind of cancel culture race debates. I, I saw it and I think it's systematically happening is race and these divisive issues are being used by corporate interests to grow their interests. I mean, I mean, you know, right now, food companies are, are paying millions of dollars to TikTok body inclusivity influencers to pressure doctors not to weigh patients. I mean, that came out, but Barry Weiss talked about that. I mean, like, 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 like the, these levers and these, these pull point, these uh, sensitivity points on society are, it's very well known by food companies, pharma companies, other big interests on how to, how to manipulate that debate. Um, and I, I don't think it's like an average person in this country even is like resonating that much with that, but like you're kind of scared to, to talk out. So I, I, I yeah, it does feel kind of. Like, I've I've gone back between optimism and despondence, but like, um, I don't really think it's the American people that are the problem. I, I think they're following incentives. You know, the four trillion dollars of healthcare incentives, six trillion dollars of food incentives that are really stacked against them. And, um, you know, I think again, it's like a bottoms up revolution where people waking up and questioning those systems, and then hopefully some leaders start stepping up and realizing the most important public policy issue is to level, level the playing field a little bit and actually have a free market, you know, where we're, you know, not subsidizing, you know, poisonous food and have a healthcare system that basically is incentivized for people to be sick. So Kelly, do you think that uh, Apple will be able to successfully jump into the blood sugar measurement um, arena? Um, I don't know if you have any kind of interesting knowledge about that, but I'll be curious to see kind of the direction they're able to take their Apple watch and their, their blood sugar measurements. I mean, my only limited knowledge is from my, my sister being very much in the CGM space is um, I think it's very complicated technology and Steve Jobs has been trying to push that, you know, uh, since Steve Jobs days for 15 years. So I think it's complicated, but I do think it's an example. Um, I think Apple's a great example. I, I don't think Apple's really tied into these incentives of everyone getting more sick. Right. And, and um, I think, um, I mean, my, my thesis and my hope is that in 10 years, uh, the doctor's office is just totally subverted. I mean, I just, um, my, my thought of the doctor's office for, you know, for what it's worth is, um, my, we've been to the doctor's office one time and I have a one year old and basically, you know, for, for, uh, just, just to go, but, but, but I, I don't think health happens at the doctor's office a lot. And I think if there were this idea that the doctor in any way has anything to do with health, the doctor's there, if you have an acute issue, if the child's about to die or you have a appendicitis or an infection, I think this idea that the doctor in any way promotes health, in my opinion, just based on empirical evidence and just looking at what's happening is a fallacy. Um, health is about daily habits and understanding what's happening day in, day out with your body. Um, and I think it's a really good trend. I mean, I, I think, you know, it's been said, it's kind of been said a lot, but it's just crazy. We have, you know, an infinite more knowledge about our car, you know, what's going on, uh, you know, with all the biomarkers than our body. Um, you know, I, I think if we actually have real-time information, I actually think Theranos was basically a good business idea, right? Uh, you know, it wasn't well executed in any way, but like having real-time information on our body, I think does completely subvert and improve upon the doctor's office. What we look at that now, where we get like one cholesterol test, you know, uh, every you know year, hopefully, right? It's just like that doesn't really do much for us. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad Apple's investing in that. And I think, you know, the MRI of what's going on within our body, I think it's a trillion dollar company. 
So that's fascinating. So if your, say, general practice doctor was not your primary source of regular health, um, would it be a different expert that you would go to or would you try to figure it out yourself? What do you think the future of that looks like? I mean, no, not to, but 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 looking at what the record of the medical establishment on you know managing health and chronic disease and thinking that your primary care doctor is any type of authority or conduit to being healthy, I, I think it's just the definition of insanity. I mean, just just statistically, like looking at what's happening to American health, um, I, I think this idea that's propagated that like for basic like chronic disease management that the primary care doctor does anything other than the harm is just a fallacy. Um, like, like health doesn't happen in the doctor's office. Health happens with our daily habits. It happens with what we feed our kids. It happens with our movement. It happens with looking at the sun. Um, you know, uh, 80% of doctors in the United States don't even take one nutrition class to graduate from med school. Um, literally diabetes doctors don't need to take one nutrition class. Um, so, so yeah, I, I just think that's just like like my, my goal is that my son like goes to the doctor as 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 few times as humanly possible. You know, you go to the doctor, you know, to to, to deal with a, a an acute issue in my in my opinion. But um, yeah, I, I think we need a total rethink. I mean, we need tools that allow us to have insight into our body, um, you know, and and, and encourage us. Um, to make those daily habits. You know, I think one good thing about biowearables where we'll hopefully get to is, is a big problem is that chronic diseases so, seem so far off in the future. But you could actually have data saying, like, if you do not exercise today and four times this week, you have an 80% chance of getting heart disease in the next four years and missing your daughter's wedding. And it's like, we literally have that, that data and statistics and could have that if we had everything in one place. And I think that type of real-time daily habit-inducing um, is, is just much more important than the doctor's office. So, you know, I think, that, I think the doctor's office uh, is going to get um, extremely uh, disrupted, hopefully, um, because that's not where health happens. Fascinating. Okay. Yeah. And I, I think uh, knowledge is power, obviously, but in addition to that, nudges, right? I know when I use bio wearables, I'll look at the information and I say, okay, I have this info, I have that info. But then when I get that nudge for my wearable that says, um, you need to stand up, it's so right. simple. But if I've been sitting and speaking of, I've been sitting for an entire hour, I might stand up here <laughs> just to get the, mm-hmm. uh, get the blood flowing. Um, but having those nudges that just move you in the right, right direction, I think are super, super helpful. And, um, that's, that's going to be a big change, um, that we don't have right now. Right. I mean, if, if I had someone in my ear 24 seven, Hey, don't eat that cookie. Hey, go get some exercise. Hey, do the right thing. Little angel on your shoulder. I think we have the potential to have that in uh, wearables and artificial I, intelligence. That we've never I think had before. So. Yeah. And my, my two cents on the, on the UX would be, or UI would be, um, I think they should be opinionated. I think they should tell us we're, we're going to, we're going to die on average of six years early. If we earlier, if we, you know, I wish my mom had that who died at 71. It's just like, um, you know, she, she wasn't told that she was told she went to the doctor, right? She went to the doctor with high cholesterol and they gave her a stat and said, this is normal. She went to the doctor and they said she had high fast, fasting glucose. She was prescribed metformin and said, this is normal. You know, she had gestational diabetes. Oh, that's fine. Everyone has that. It's like, that's what the doctor does. In my opinion, the doctor's like, Oh, uh, fasting glucose. Uh, here's a drug. These are all warning signs, right? And what we need and what I hope we have is AI and data that's tied into our body that really tells us like, hey, this is based on your daily habits. And if you, if you, you know, I mean, it's, it's what my company's trying to do essentially, which is, you know, we, we, we take some data uh, 
through an asynchronous survey and we actually write, you know, food prescriptions um, and exercise prescriptions, which then counts for tax-free spending. Um, you know, I hope over time as we have biosensors tied in, we can actually like give really personalized food and exercise interventions based on exactly what your biosensors are at that moment. You know, and really let you know both, both how to prevent chronic disease in the future. But I also think we've just normalized feeling like shit. I mean, the number one reason people go to the doctors is feelings of, of, of general fatigue and sluggishness. You know, anxiety is off the charts. Um, you know, uh, uh, insomnia, all these things. It's like, this is not normal. And I, I just think if you had better data, better AI, I, I think there's great, but, but, but these companies have to go against the incentives of the existing system. Still, most healthcare VC dollars are spent to sick care based companies that are, you know, putting a millennial pink package over Viagra and sending them to you, which is not innovation. Um, or, you know, making a better UX for medical records. It, you know, we have to have companies that try to disrupt the, fun, the fundamental incentive, which is that make, you make money out when people are sick. We need to disrupt that incentive. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's not just financial incentive. Um, I know as a healthcare provider, it's very uncomfortable to have a frank conversation with a patient. Um, I can very easily say, gloss over, you know, health history and obesity and these kinds of things and not talk about interventions. I don't want to tell you to quit smoking. I don't want to tell you to eat better. I can save time and uh, I cannot upset you by just glossing over it and talking only about, you know, your specific issue. And I think that's an endemic. Uh, and then, you know, you're looking at scores as well. I mean, as a, a medical provider, um, you can easily anger a patient. Uh, we get comments back all the time. Um, my weight was talked about in a way that offended me. Um, and so, you know, I, I didn't like being treated that way. I need to be treated better in the future. You know, the, the medical system in a way has become almost like hotels, right? Where, you know, if the, if the bedding isn't uh, uh, just right and if you're not nice enough to me and you don't give me exactly the pain medications I want, then you didn't do a good job. Um, so that's another misaligned incentive area that's been really interesting for me, you know, working in medicine. I think uh, John had a follow-up question. Well, I was just going to make the point that I think that what makes this dif this discussion so difficult is that if you go by the data, a lot of this exists on small, thin margins accumulated over time. So, for example, if you look at data for diabetics or for obese patients and their mortality over time, you're looking at no nominal differences of only like somewhere between a quarter percent and one percent, even for relatively bad cases, mortality difference on any given year. And over 20 or 30 years, that accumulates. And so there's this big discord between what we all know and what we can see with our own eyes, which is there are no 80-year-olds who weigh 400 pounds. There just aren't. Um, and yet the 400-pounder the is you know, not much more likely to die you know, between age 43 and 44 as any other person. So their argument is, uh, listen, there's really just a lot of bias on your part. My weight doesn't you know, add that much to my overall health, which is true on a limited time basis. But just like everything else, when you compound interest, you know, you can build a fortune out of very little. It's the same thing with risk. You know, small risks taken over 20, 30 years result in devastating consequences. So everybody's right in this, but it, it's not an easy issue to parse, especially when you can't um, point to data that says, look, here's the just some difference of 20 years of lifestyle choices. Thank, yeah, that's a good point, John. I, I think so for us at the present Fathers podcast, I, our, our stance on this kind of thing is, it, you know, this starts with your home, right? So you're the dad, 
take take ownership, take leadership in this. If you don't know much, go research it. If you do know a good amount, apply it to your family, right? And change your family first. And I think if, if we all started doing that a little bit better, right, then maybe this problem also starts to subside. But, you know, I, I'm not a doctor. I'm not <laughs> as educated as some of the other people here. But I, I think that that's something that everyone can take a hard look in the mirror at, you know, today is, you know, hey, let, let's as parents, as, as leaders of our homes, let's let's take ownership of that piece of the world first and solve it. And then, you know, hopefully if we all replicate that, we can uh, put a dent in this issue. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think Dustin did a phenomenal job earlier of sort of laying this issue out. And that's, you know, what role are you really trying to have? Do you want to appease your kid and give him a present at the party? Or do you want to do what's right for your kid's long-term health? If your kid's eating sugar, you know, every single weekend and knocking down a thousand calories of, of pure processed sugar every every birthday party you know, your role as a parent is probably to step in and say, look, you know, my job isn't to make my kid the happiest kid at this party. My job is to make my kid the healthiest human being. If your kid only goes to one birthday party every three or four months, yeah, okay, eating that piece of cake isn't going to hurt him and it's a treat. And it really just comes down to reclaiming the parental responsibility. And as your podcast is titled, being a present parent and knowing what your kid's experiences and regulating that for them because kids have no regulation of their own none yep agree wholeheartedly you got to tell your kids no i'm so gr grateful to you guys uh, on this and and, and uh, folks listening you know i just you know um hope this is adding value if there's a, if there's a question or two more uh, can absolutely engage if um if uh anyone has something on their mind yeah, yeah. So obviously with biowearables, um, you know, starting with ourselves, getting healthy, that's great. Um, but as a father, my biggest concern is breaking unhealthy um, psychology that was taught to me as far as bad, you know, eating habits. And there's so much conflicting information out there for us dads who are intellectually in, uh, encouraged or are curious about trying to be to be good without having to be a nutritional doctor. So uh, do you have good sites or sources that you trust personally that you think would be a, a great place to start for us? Because like a great example, I am using an app called Zuka or Yuka, and it's telling me that half these foods that I'm feeding my kids have additives and all these chemicals that are actually harmful to their bodies. And it's, it's just mind blowing how hidden some of that stuff is outside of your sodium and your sugar. Oh, it's crazy. It, totally crazy. Um, so my thesis is just like, as again, I, I'm would say early on this path, um, but just, just, just kind of, you're never going to find the full answers, but I even think as a family, you know, my hope would be, you know, we just work with our son on this and just like having him really like learn early to think for himself. I think food is a way to maybe even teach kids. It's like, don't trust everything society tells you and think for yourself. But um, specifically, um, I don't know, just specific books that have really influenced me. And then I, I, I look at the bibliographies and go down to rabbit holes and others. But Mark Hyman, The Blood Sugar Solution, if you're truly trying to change your diet right now. The Pegan Diet, he wrote, which is just a more kind of simple list of principles. Um, Food Fix, which he wrote, which is a great systemic kind of um, analysis of the system. Robert Lustig, a doctor, has written two books, The Hacking of the American Mind, which does focus a bit on uh, on children, just about how tying basically porn and 
um, you know, phone addictions and sugar. And basically all these things are all just attacking basically the dopamine receptors of a, of a child and, and us. And, and, and I really think many of these just dopamine things are just tied together. It gets into that. And then metabolical is a really good book. Um, and then, you know, I, I found value in the Instagram, Twitter kind of health space, um, uh, Flav City, this this Instagram account where it's a guy and his daughter and he just really unpacks the ingredient labels. I, Bobby Parrish, I, I, you know, is one I really like. But, um, you know, I, I, th- those are specific resources I, I rely on a lot. And then, uh, honestly, um, the Levels Health, uh, levelshealth.com, my sister's company, they've invested just an insane amount of resources in their blog. Um, and it is the best in class, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles about any food you can imagine just unpacking, um, these things in a, like an incredibly rigorous way, um, uh, is a great resource, uh, that I use a lot and, and they get millions of views on that blog. It's an incredible resource. Awesome. Thank you so much. Very cool. Um, okay. And then can you tell us about, uh, your company, um, involved with HSAs and FSAs? Can you give us a time frame on when that'll be available? Sure. Kind of what those resources look like? Yeah. You can follow me on Twitter and then true med payments and, and you can sign up on truemed.com um, for that. But, but here's the, here's the quick, uh, thing on the company. Um, you know, kind of being radicalized and awakened on these issues we're talking about, you know, there's really one simple question, which is how do we incentivize people to be healthy? Um, 95% of costs in the healthcare system wait for people to get sick and make money off that. How do we incentivize people to be healthy? So most people in this call probably heard or have access to, most Americans do have access to an HSA, FSA. I've never used it. Most people don't optimize it because it's like this use it or lose it. Often it's scary. It's like, well, am I going to get sick? And that's kind of one of the problems with healthcare, right? It's like we're waiting to get sick. What we realize is that the IRS guidelines uh, say uh, that if a doctor writes a note prescribing, basically not prescribing, but, you know, delineating that food or exercise, you know, or supplements or a cold plunge or, or an eight sleep or what have you, items that improve metabolic health, if they write that in the note um, for the reversal or prevention, you know, even if you have a family history of diabetes and want to prevent that, then that counts for this tax-free spending. Um, you know, and, and most of you probably see an open enrollment, you can elect to put tax-free money in that account. So that's 30, 40% savings or whatever your income tax rate is. Uh, you can get a credit card, but, but you can spend $7,200 for a family tax-free and we're, our company, our integrate, our, our, our go-to-market, we're going to be integrated as a payment provider. So just like a firm or PayPal, you're going to see us right in the payment flow of some of your favorite brands. Um, so these aren't necessarily the exact brands we're going to launch with, but like brands like Athletic Greens, like Peloton, like, you know, some of your favorite healthy brands um, will just be right there in the payment flow. And you click us and instead of, you know, answering a couple, um, you know, questions like a firm on your credit, you answer four health questions and you can get approved right in the flow and pay tax free for some of these items for exercise, for food, for supplements. We're going to be very rigorous on what we approve. But you can go to our website and we're launching to answer your question in a couple months. Uh, you know, we're, we're, this is you know going to be a payment integration officially approved by all the um, platforms like Shopify or going through some some technical uh, work there. But um, it's working. We've got great merchants on board. Um, so that that's what we're there for, using your HSA, FSA dollars for healthy items. 
And to us, this is a model of where public policy needs to go. Just this application could save a family a couple thousand bucks, right, on these items, which, which you know, starts making the price of these, you know, healthy food a little bit better. But we really think healthcare policy needs to go from, you know, subsidizing Ozempic you know, to giving people, you know, subsidization and, 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 and easier ways to incentivize better food. This is to us where the right healthcare policy is, and you can do it right now with HSA, FSA. So we hope, you know, for folks listening, it's a way, you know, that you, if you bond with this food is medicine mission, you know, this is a way to use those healthcare dollars that, you know, pharma is waiting to get sick and use that on pharma. You can use that on healthy items right now. And we're trying to create a movement around that. So, so truemed.com be launched in a couple of months. My, my co-founder, Justin Mayers started uh, kettle and fire bone broth and perfect keto, two great, you know, category leading food brands before. And we're, we're both just super passionate about this issue and uh, trying to build a great company to, to just enable savings on, uh, on healthy items. Oh, I love kettle and fire bone broth. That's funny. yeah. What a small yeah. world. That's really cool. Justin yeah, definitely. Mayers, he's a great guy. Very cool. Okay. Yeah. So how are you balancing your time as a dad right now? You have a one-year-old. Mm-hmm. I know how much work that is. Um, yeah. You're working this company. You're working on this advocacy. Is it like <laughs> 30% kid, 30% business, 30% advocacy? Like how are you able to, to juggle oh, it all? Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. The advocacy, you know, this has always been my dream. This is why Justin and I got in this is to, you know, this is this company is to move the mission forward and be foot soldiers on that. So I'm almost seeing the advocacy, you know, it's Justin's working on the product and I'm you know, um, we're not talking much about the company, but I, hopefully we're building a community and we really do feel like our company is a solution, one solution. Um, so, um, so, you know, it's basically that's on company time and that's what I'm focused on right now. Um, and then I get, you know, the book, uh, has been kind of stressful, um, too. So I'm not really fulfilling the, uh, the sleep, uh, habits as much as I, I preach, unfortunately right now, but, um, um, and then, and then being a dad is the greatest thing that's ever happened. I mean, it's, it's just, it's just the greatest thing. And all I want to do is spend time with my son. And then my wife, you know, starting a company to a, a startup. So, oh gosh, I don't know. I need advice from you guys. I mean, I think it's just constant communication and calibration. Um, you know, I think, um, I think it, it's honestly been tough. I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, my, my wife and I worked, uh, you know, we're co-founders of a, of our, our past startup for six years together that was, you know, we started that during our engagement. So we've gotten a lot of a crash course in uh, crisis communication with each other. So we're, we're, we're relying on that and just trying to kind of communicate every day on it. But it, but it is, it is a lot of, I'm so grateful to be pushing this mission. It's all just awesome. But um, probably like a lot of people in this call, it's the doctors on this call who <laughs> stretch. I mean, I don't know. Um, just every day, just try to try to prioritize and, uh, and get it done. I don't know. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. Um, we uh, we had a guest on a few months ago, um, Dr. Willard Harley. He wrote uh, His Needs, Her Needs probably 20 years ago. It was kind of um, the the love languages before love languages <laughs> got popular. I honestly think uh, they borrowed some of the material from him. And, you know, it's all about making sure you're, you're meeting. Yeah, I think where he was going is it's about meeting your spouse's needs. And if, if you guys are mutually supporting each other, um, you know, kind of regardless of what season of your, your life you're in, you can have a successful marriage. Um, yeah. I'll not read, sure. Du- <laughs> yeah. Not sure if Dustin is coming back, but um, we are at about an hour and a half now. Um, I think this is a kind of a good closing point. Callie, we want to thank you sincerely for, for joining us on this. And, um, you know, we, we want to support you in this because this is a message that we're, we're very passionate about. Uh, I think everyone, you know, most parents are passionate about it. So um, I love your your thoughts on kind of getting some grassroots efforts going. Um, 
Go, could you just plug real quick one one last time where everyone can kind of follow and get get involved and um, at least yeah. now and then that way they can kind of get information in the future for how to help. Really appreciate it, guys. Yeah. So so you know, Twitter. I'm focused on this health stuff. Um, you know, I think we think our company's a great solution. Going to be chatting a little bit about that, but really just trying to add value uh, on this health stuff. Um, but the company is TrueMed. TrueMed.com. It's basically a landing page. But uh, if you sign up for the email there. Um, you know what we'll, we'll let you know and try to save everyone money on uh, on healthy foods and then on my twitter yeah um this is still embryonic but we are you know if that grassroots thing resonates with you you know a lot of folks i've rarely called or, or done anything in the political process but gosh um if 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 folks that are concerned about kids and nutrition uh if we can rally and focus our efforts on specific issues that is how that is how change happens. I mean, that combats money uh, if people actually are focused on this issue. So, uh, working on some efforts uh, with some other great uh, people, and uh, we'll be sharing about that on my Twitter. But follow me on Twitter, and then uh, TrueMed.com, um, or you know, just sign up for that if if that resonates. Awesome, thank you, Kelly. Everyone who's listening, please go give him a follow. Please uh, check him out, too, on his other podcast that he's doing. He's uh, really gone through a lot of issues, uh, even more in-depth than we have here. Uh, and, Callie, we'll have to bring you back in a couple months on the actual podcast, not a Twitter space, and that way we can maybe, hopefully have seen that the, uh, the issue is getting better. Um, and then a shameless plug for the Present Fathers podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. We're pretty much everywhere, Spotify. Uh, same name in every location. So, Callie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for the conversation. Thanks Thank to the group for getting involved. Thank you, guys. So grateful for everyone listening, and hope this is valuable. And, and thank you, guys. Thanks for watching this episode of the Present Fathers Podcast. We look forward to seeing you in the next episode.